0: This podcast Fire Pillars a Mad Monolith Production Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh Dear brothers, sisters, friends And the foes out there I pray you're all well And welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast With your host Dili Hussain Now you may all be wondering Where's Aki? Uh, he's been very busy A new dad um, Some other life responsibilities But he will be back soon inshallah. He misses you guys as much as you all miss him um, And today episode, along with all the episodes this month, is in partnership with Family Breaks which is an Islamic retreat for families and children uh, to enrich themselves spiritually, inshallah. The details will be at the bottom of the screen, please check them out www.familybreaks.org.uk Today's guest brothers and sisters um, is someone who's very dear to me, uh, someone who I regard as a teacher, a mentor, an advisor, a brother and a friend. Uh, and it's someone who has, of late at least, has been shaping the way I understand uh, and you know convey uh, Ottoman history. Something which is, is a great passion and an area of interest for me, and that is none other than Dr. Yaqub Ahmed. Asalamu alaikum. How are you? Um, I'm great. Um, you're here in the UK for a short stay.
1: Yeah, yeah. I came to see my father. So, do you regard the UK as home or Turkey as home now? You know, I used to say home is where your mother is. Okay. Um, now I say home is where you live. Okay. So I live in Istanbul. So uh, Turkey's home. Yes, it is home. Yeah, if it was actually, um, I was looking at a couple of my students' uh, Instagram feed and I was missing it. So, yeah.
0: Does Pakistan have a place that could be regarded as home in your heart?
1: Honestly, um, Pakistan as a place, I would like to hope so, but I haven't been in Pakistan for a long time. But emotionally and culturally, still I'm attached to Pakistan just because that was the prevalent culture in my household. So, um, I come from a place of multiple. I mean, look, series in my place. I mean, I used to live in Damascus for uh, how long? Three years of my life, and so every single place I've been to has left a mark on me, you leave an imprint, and you have an affinity to that place. Damascus was beautiful. I mean, I, um, it's a shame, yeah.
0: Yeah. So let me kick off today's podcast by first asking you um, five questions. Perfect. Now I know academics have a problem not only with word limits But yeah. generally sometimes they tend to uh, go off on one, but that's, that's fine okay. uh, But because I do like the sound of your voice, I may allow My you, to you. <laughs> So let me ask you some 5 questions, if I can have some short succinct answers okay, And then perhaps we can elaborate on it later on sure. in the podcast If you had to share mm. a 7 day boat ride yeah. with one of the Ottoman Sultans From the thirty-six, I believe that existed, yeah. who
1: would it be and yeah. why? It has to be Abdul Hamid, right? Okay Uh, It has to be Abdul Hamid I mean I'm a 19th century historian Yeah And uh, I would be intrigued in how he felt when it was all falling apart After holding it together for that long Interesting Um,
0: One of the, name me the greatest single achievement of the Ottomans What do you think the greatest single achievement?
1: For sticking around for that long Transformation, being able to uh, reinvent themselves for 600 years
0: Your biggest single critique of the Ottomans Collapse. Um, one of the most defining battles in Ottoman history.
1: Uh, Istanbul. Uh, 1453.
0: And as a historian, which other historian in in, in in the field of Ottomans do you rate and regard and recommend?
1: Oh, that's uh, So I have a. Okay, this is personal, but I have a friend of mine who's very dear to me. His name is Abdul Hamid Okay. And um, he's not only a historian, he's a brother to me who took care of me in Turkey throughout my time there So if I were to pick one, he would be the one Okay, mashallah
0: Now, you're currently a lecturer in University of Istanbul, right? Yeah And which department? Theology Okay Yeah. But fundamentally, you are a British born Pakistani from South London Yeah, that's right So what possessed you, first and foremost, to choose Ottoman history as an area to Uh. to specialise in? How much time do you have? Bismillah, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'm, I'm sure you can deliver it in a, in a very economical way.
1: It's a difficult one. So actually, I'm not only Pakistani, my dad's from Uganda. So um, we have this mixed background, uh, mixed cultural background. A British desi. Yeah, yeah, um, you're right. Um, so when I was living in Syria, um, I was studying Arabic and I had a friend, um, abdurrahman and he was uh, a convert to Islam and he was studying Ottoman history. And I used to speak to him because I found it... Um, Quite strange that at the time the, a lot of Ottoman buildings were being hidden and so forth, and the Ottoman memory was being like phased out in Syrian society because they had a to build the Syrian nation state, you have to had you have to create a, a narrative of the past that's been decadent, so that you can create the the, the flourishing of a new nation state, right? So, so
0: this was a Ba'athist policy.
1: Yeah, but it's not only a Ba'athist policy. This is a policy of Arab nationalism in particular. So okay. it was across the board. Um, it's not only that. It, I mean, this happened in the Balkans as well. So. Um, for me, I remember seeing, like, there was famous market called al Hamidiya, uh, which is named after mm. Sultan Abdul Hamid II, mm. and his, his Torah, his cipher, was mm. on the wall. Um, and the massacre is, is great. I mean, you see tombs of Salah you see, um, you know, uh, Muawiyah is buried there, Yazid is, is buried there, Bilal is buried there. It's amazing. Like, the city is just a goldmine. Um, but one of the things I noticed was this sort of, like, lack of investment in the Ottoman past, which frustrated me a little bit. Um, but that's not... Why I I went to study it, I actually came home because my mother was sick, um, and I decided to do a master's. And I took a course at SOAS, and I loved it. Um, But I also recognized the fact I had so my my brain was like Dutch cheese, just so many Mm holes. And I was like, "What's going on here?" And then you know the the Bernard Lewis question: What went wrong? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of Muslims felt that way. What went wrong? Mm -hmm. What's happening here? And seriously, at the time when I was studying my master in two thousand and seven, I was the only Muslim in the class. Really? Yeah, and um, I remember Muslims just not caring. It, it wasn't only Ottoman studies.
0: It's Islamic studies in general?
1: Yeah, by and large. Um, I remember going to my local masajid, and even in the seminaries, Muslim scholars not interested in Islamic history. And uh, so, uh, Why do you feel that is? That's a good question.
0: Why, why do you feel that there is... I, I know, because I've observed it as well. Yeah, uh, Theology, jurisprudence is alive and kicking. Right. Yeah. But when it comes to Islamic history, from the perspective of identity and revival, Mm. there does seem to be a disconnect amongst ulama
1: of all theological schools and backgrounds. I'm not saying they all are, but I've observed it. Why do you think that is? No, it's a valid observation because when you see in in the past, like if you read At-Tabari or so forth, um, the ulama were the ones who were writing history. So they were writing history as Muslims for Muslims. And something's gone wrong in the 19th century onwards. I mean, we have in the Ottoman space, we do have it in Arab history in particular, that ulama were writing, but something happens after World War One, where um, the space is diminished. I guess the ulama—I'm guessing—and I could be wrong. And I'm more than happy for them to criticize me here. I'm more concerned in trying to save the the more what they would call pure sciences for them. Mm. Um, history took a back seat, mm. and then gradually history became the domain of Western academia. And it, it's—I mean—in England and the United States, the humanities is the space or was the space for intellectual sort of like uh, investigation, right? Mm-hmm. And for them, historians and people who did those subjects were the ones who made uh, intellectual inquiry about society, civilization, and so forth. Mm. We lost that somewhere. I can't put my finger on it in all honesty, but I think we need to have a conversation again about, look, everything needs context. Yeah. Um, so even like Quran needs h- historical context, right? So I, when I was in high recently, I was explaining to them, look, when um, Let's look at the first word of the Qur'an, it's Iqra, no. right? So, Jibreel <laughs> salam comes to Rasul Sallam and says, <laughs> The word Iqra, when you ask people in English what does it mean, they'll say it means to read. Mm. And indeed it does. So the Qur'an, the word Qur'an, Qara'ah, mm. comes from the word Iqra. Mm. So the Qur'an from the first word we know now, it's going to be something that's going to be read. Yeah. The first word yeah. is sufficient to tell us that this is going to be a book. It's quite intriguing for me, right? Mm. All right. So when Jibreel mm-hmm. sent Salam is to Rasulullah Iqra. He didn't write on the wall with chalk in the cave. Iqra bismi rabbi allazi khalaq. The narrative goes that he squeezed the Rasulullah. Yeah. So what's he asking Rasulullah to do? To recite. To recite.
2: Yeah.
1: So Iqra means to read. Mm. Iqra means to recite. But when Rasulullah is saying for example, I'm ammi. I mean, I can't recite this. Yeah. I mean, what does he mean he can't recite? Recitation is easy, like when I went to madrasa to learn Qur'an, mm-hmm. I learned from the recitation model yeah. The Imam would say, "Iqra yeah. rabbi and then you said the same So what's going on here in terms of Rasul <laughs> saying Sorry. that he's, he's not literate? Mm-hmm. Well, the interesting thing is, is Rasul <laughs> is listening to Qur'an for the first time He's the first human being to hear Qur'an, he's hearing milk of Allah Ta'ala mm-hmm. That is fascinating for me So there was a scholar in Syria, of, I mean, and a friend of mine, Ahmed, he highlighted this to me That there was a scholar, Hassan Habanaka He says that Iqra can also mean to understand So now, if we read it, Iqra bismi rabbi Khalaq, understand in the name of your Rabb, that you were created from Khalaq mm. That makes sense now, okay. because you're being taught something here So why am I highlighting this to you? So the first word of the Qur'an means to read Yeah The first word of the Qur'an means to recite the first word of the Quran means to understand. understand. The first word of the Quran has totally had to interact the book. One word, it's sufficient. Yeah. Here you start to see language is important, and what you understand is the power that speaking to you is Allah Taala. Yeah. So here now is amazing. Like one word is sufficient to relay this whole thing, right? And for me, like when I when I look at Quran like that. And I think well Muslims are not even interacting this narrative of Sirah mm. with Quran. Mm. Right? So put Ottoman history to side, even when I'm teaching Sira or we, we we can see that Muslims they they haven't even invested in that, that basic foundation. And the sera is beautiful. Um, there's a lot of pain and difficulties in it. And if you're going to, I've always said this, that if you're going to read Seerah, you cannot read Seerah without reading Quran at the same time Because the Quran is the biography to some degree of Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam telling us this So um, it's not just Ottoman studies here, something's gone horribly wrong um, How do we change that? I guess we've got to vocalise it first Are we in a state of intellectual decline? I don't know if we're in a state of intellectual decline, but there's definitely an intellectual deficit okay. um, There's a deficit of leadership too and there's a deficit of intellectual leadership.
0: So, what made you then do this masters, and what was the specific masters you did in? Uh, near Middle Eastern studies. Okay, and then and then from um, how did that then become transpire to you going off to Turkey and teaching Turks about their own? One could argue, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't like the term "noise," yeah, yeah. but teaching the Turks about their own. Why didn't you stay here mm. and teach the Muslims here about Ottoman and Islamic history?
1: Well, I just loved it. Okay. I just found it fascinating initially. Yeah, I was a Muslim going, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. Um, and I didn't want to do the PhD because I just, I find academia difficult. People are going to be surprised. I hate reading. I hate the library. I hate writing even more. Do, do you like Instagram stories? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, calling me out. Yeah, I do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm a serial Instagrammer. Uh, but I'm not in them. So yeah. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> uh, but um, something happened where... Um, Okay, I was a bit of a storyteller And I enjoyed telling these stories to my friends And I remember the trigger was when I said A friend of mine said to me Oh, is Abdul Hamid II the Sultan that comes after Salah Ayubi?" Oh, good Lord Right, that sounds bizarre for you right now But <laughs> it, But nobody knew who the Ottomans were Nobody knew who the Mughals were And we were talking earlier Even West Africa There's so much of this Islamic history that's missing mm. Anyway, so I got on with my life I was busy and so forth And I went to a talk And my supervisor at the time had seen me at the talk pulled me over to a side and goes why are you not pursuing this you, you loved it I said this is a privilege I don't have the money for it um, and I don't come from a privileged background I come from a working-class background mm. um, my single mother working in a factory holding down two jobs and she did fantastically well in terms of raising two kids and um, I just thought that's not for me um, you know what I did I saved money and I did it um, And then I realized that history is not about storytelling. It's ideology. It's power. It's narrative. Um, It's something much more than that. It's machinery. Mm. And when I started doing the PhD, um, when I went to Turkey initially to present my work, I was actually some scholars, not all scholars. Some were really warm, but others was quite skeptical.
0: A Muslim, non-Turkish Ottoman historian
1: coming into the scene. It's weird because that can be taken from a historian who was white. And I don't want to play the race card, but it can be taken. For, but when I was doing it, it was a little bit difficult. And I did often get questions, not only from the Turkish community, by the way, from the Indo-Pac community too, that why don't you just study about the Mughals? Why are you studying about the Ottomans? And that's a bizarre question because I always say to Muslims, just study everything. Yeah. Study French Revolution. I don't care what you study, just study it, mm. right? I just took an interest in Ottoman history. Um, but why? Why Ottoman history?
0: Why not Abbasid history, Umayyad history, because Ayyubid it, history, Mughal history? I
1: guess the 19th century was so fresh. I think World War I was fresh. I think the collapse of the Ottomans was fresh. I think I could see history manifested in Istanbul. I could see it everywhere. And I, I guess the ideas that I was studying at soas for my masters at the time. Those debates and discussions hadn't changed. They were talking about justice, they were talking about Islam, they were talking about Islamic revivalism, they were talking about power, authority, agency, colonialism. Would
0: you say Muslims were widely absent in those discussions?
1: Not amongst themselves. It was there, it was quite vibrant. But something's happened where we don't know those discussions anymore. So we bring to the table like where these geniuses that are coming out with something fresh and new and people have discussed it 200 to 100 years ago. Mm. And I just thought, whoa, okay, what's going on here? Okay. Oh sorry, you meant that these discussions were taking place 100-200 years ago Yeah, in the Ottoman domains Yeah, and many scholars thinkers, intellectuals who mm-hmm. had put, put this forward And for me that was like, okay, what can I take from this? What can I learn from this? How can I internalize this? Should I internalize it? What does this mean f- for me as a Muslim? I mean, I'm a historian who believes that Muslims should just invest in Islam mm. Okay, there's a difference between the studying of what Muslims do Which is, by and large, the discussion we'll have today But then there's the, the study of Islam itself, mm. right? And I'm an intellectual historian, so I'm more interested in ideas So then ideas are, can be quite independent And then how can you make these ideas more vibrant and relevant today? And ideas are built on ideas, right? So nothing comes from a vacuum And even in Islam, we say, you know, Allah Ta'ala taught Adam and Islam the names of things mm. And then people built on that yeah. So what can I build on a history that existed 100-200 years ago Of which now I believe, strongly, that we have a collective amnesia of um, and is it relevant? And I think it is relevant. And remember, the Ottomans are not just Istanbul, it's the Balkans, the Arab provinces, it's, it's Africa. And I it's said, th- It's three continents. Three continents, yeah. And I told you before, Africa is a Muslim continent for me. Yeah. So um, we got to stop looking at the Ottomans as Turks. Yeah. And it's more than that. Now, why did I go to Turkey? going back to your point
0: why didn't you stay here and pursue, and pursue these studies here if you felt like there was also a need for Muslims non-turkish British Muslims to also yeah. reconnect with this history
1: I think it's a fair charge made in my direction um, yes. I'm not going to um, I'm not going to try to make excuses for that My personal rationalization at the time was one I could go to Turkey and learn more about Ottoman studies for myself but when I lived in Syria I noticed a brain drain in Syria which really hurt me. And I became invested in the region and I wanted to stop that in Turkey too. Okay. And actually, I started to think a bit bigger in terms of the omatic paradigm. Okay. In terms of, I think we need to have that conversation about what the omatic paradigm means to us. I mean, you have your own local um, dynamics, but what does local mean? So I live in Tuting. it's local Tuting. So when I went to my local masjid, they said, you know, he, he's back. Um, and then I went to High Wycombe to give a talk and they said that was local like he, he's from England Yeah, yeah okay. Do you know what I mean? And then when I go to um, the People speaking to Indian Pakistan Bengali background. He's local. Oh, he's one Baham. of us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then <laughs> Turkey, he's one of us. He's Muslim. Yeah. Of course he is. He's, he's one of our scholars. He's not an outsider And I've I've won many people over so I think that conversation needs to be had in terms of what when we're looking at this automatic paradigm So I've said this before That when Rasulullah says, Ummati, Ummati, in the famous hadith, he's not talking about just the Ummah right now, he's talking about the Ummah at the time, right? In the future, yeah. So what we've done is we've boxed ourselves into the Ummah of today. We've actually taken ourselves to be far more important. And we don't realize that there's an Ummah of the past that has restricted us of what it means to belong to the Ummah. And then there's an Ummah of the future that we can't even see it, Mm. right? So what does it mean to belong to that Ummah? Um, that we can't imagine. So we have a responsibility not only of the Uyghurs, the, uh, the Warringas, Syrians, um, you know, or... Kashmiris, Muslim, Palestinians, 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 Muslims so in Africa, Muslims in, in the West even. We have to have a responsibility of an ummah that can exist in one, two, three, four hundred years' time, an mm. imagination. Mm. So my argument has always been that our imagination is myopic, which means myopic means we can only see in front of us. So mm. that means we have now a really poor understanding of the past, and we don't have any imagination of the future. It's colonized. Are, the, are those two things linked? Yes, of course they are, because you have to place yourself in a timeline of history where you're at. Mm. So, how do you fit? So, once we were talking about Ottoman history, and I said about right, yeah. do
2: you?
1: how is Rasul Sallam relatable for you? Mm. How are the Umayyads relatable for you? How are the Abbasis relatable for you? How are the Seljuk Turks related, or the Ilhanis? How are the Mughals related? How are the Muslims in China? at the time uh, relatable to you. How are the Muslims in Africa? This all matters Mm. in terms of how you place yourself in in those relationships, human relationships and Islam. And then what sort of imagination do you have for the future? So I said this before, when you watch movies, um, back to the future is what my students were saying. I said, what's the future going to be like? There's hoverboards, flying cars. Is that what they think? That's what they think. Or they have a dystopian understanding. Terminator, you know, the Terminators are coming, Blade Mm. Runner and so forth. Where's Islam in the conversation? It's just not there. So you can see is Islam is totally taken out of the imagination. For them, Islam is a service for them. And that's very concerning. For me as a historian, definitely. Yeah, so yeah. now when you're asking me in terms of a historian, um, why is history important? That's why it's important, because we intellectualize that space, right? And if you look at people like um, uh, Ibn Khaldun in particular, he was a visionary. Yeah. Well, his book is still can be read today. Mm. Al-Ghazali You still read his work today Because writing is timeless in that sense Yeah And they, it's the umatic paradigm for them Yes, Fatawa culture is local Yeah But generally when you're writing from the umatic paradigm It's timeless Yeah, yeah Right? And it transcends regions, right. generations So that imagination needs to exist And imagination isn't wrong The Qur'an gives you imagination When Allah says And Nuh alayhi salam You were there And Musa alayhi salam And Jannah looks like this, this and this And Jahannam is like this, this, this So something's happened there Where Muslims have just become so present in, like, thinking within the present context, and that concerns me. So when I went to Turkey, I didn't see myself now as a British Muslim anymore. I, I, I find that problematic, to even coin that. I, mm. I, I was just Muslim. Okay. And, yes, don't I, get me wrong, there are some challenges. Of course, people are going to ask you. Like, what and you what found.
0: are those challenges? What kind of challenges have you found <laughs> as a... Look, mm. the, I don't like these labels of stud, yeah? Sure. But the thing is, they are what they are. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you are a non Turk yeah. from the UK mm-hmm. that's gone to Turkey to uh-huh. essentially teach uh-huh. the Turkish Shabaab about their history, yeah. yeah? Or was perceived widely as their history, yeah? Yeah, yeah? What kind of challenges have you faced?
1: Well, first of the question is just uh, how British am I? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're still having this question right now yeah. what does it mean to be British? Um, look, when I went there, I actually loved it initially. So whenever someone challenged me, yeah. I thought, you know, I'm going to show you. Okay. I'm going to let you know. Listen, look, this because I believe that that history belonged to Islam in the sense that it's Islamic history and it's taught in Western academic spaces, which talks about Islamic history from a particular point of view in power. And then the only other group of people that write about Ottoman history are by and large Turks and then people in the region. And I just thought, why are we as Muslims not invested? So I went in there to be part of the bigger fraternity. Language is a barrier. Culture, for sure, is a barrier. But even the way that academia is done, it's done differently in Turkey than it's done in um, you, the United Kingdom and in America and Europe. What's even interesting is Arab scholarship on Ottoman history is, is really terrible, actually. It's quite appalling. And then in the Balkans, there's a problem because all of these identities come from this space. Yeah. In fairness, the Turks have done the best in that sense. And the Turks, actually, seriously, they do a lot of good work. And, and, but it's a different form of... Scholarship—it's done in a different way.
0: Uh, give me an anecdotal example, or, or what, what, what? One, one kind of difference.
1: So, Tatars, I guess it's maybe unfair, but they don't do grand narrative anymore. Okay, they, it's very data-driven. Periodic, not necessarily periodic, but the data is important. The, the resources, okay, they, what they have is resources.
0: So, so when did they ship When did they move away from the grand narrative kind of approach to history? Or I, to history.
1: I don't know if they. I think in the sixties and seventies they were doing grand narrative. Yeah, and then like. And it was established that this is what the grand narrative is and revisionism is very very difficult to do mm. um, but maybe one of the, the challenges could be because revising that means you revise your own identity mm. right so I have said this before as historians we're kind of time travelers okay we go back in time we change your history it changes who you are today yeah it changes your memories um, they publish a lot of works it's really hard to keep up actually okay um, their publications are intense
0: how long did it take you to learn Ottoman Turkish
1: I think I'm still learning You're still learning Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough um, I think I'm still learning Turkish I think I'm still learning Arabic I think the language learning doesn't stop um, Is knowing uh, Ottoman Turkish
0: a a, a a key to actually accessing the depth of Ottoman history? In yeah terms of de- In terms of actual primary source yeah, data?
1: Yeah, I, I think so um, It's a language of power to some mm. degree And it's an interesting form of power i give you an example why I mean by power So while... The Ottomans are using the Ottoman Turkish or as we say. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like, so colonial languages, they dominate other languages. Ottoman Turkish didn't do that to other languages. In fact, Ottoman Turkish was negotiating with Persian and Arabic, which is very rare to do for a power of coloniality. Or so power. It,
0: inc- it included those languages it, within.
1: Not, it not only includes it it, it, it really allows it to flourish within it. Okay. So, I mean, one of the arguments I make, for example, is like, if Quran. So Quran elevated Arabic. So Arabic existed prior to the revelation. Yeah. The Quran and
0: took it to a next level.
1: Quran takes it to a next level, yeah. right? And then Quran does that to Islamicate languages. Yeah. So Islamicate languages are those languages which were used by Muslims. So Urdu, Farsi, Persian, Jawi, um, Albanian, mm. Mala- you know, you name it. Yeah. And those languages used to be written in Arabic script, mm. um, and they had a lot of loan words that were from Arabic or Farsi, or they had indigenous words that had become Islamized. Yes. So Islamicate languages literally submitted to Islam. Yeah. Right. And so even if you look into those Islamicate languages, you find a lot of Islamic nuance that can just be understood from feeling. Mm. So Salah and Namaz, yeah, they translate smoothly. Yeah, of course. So there's no, but Salah and Prayer, they don't translate as smoothly. Absolutely. Okay, so then the non-Islamicate languages like English, French, German, they're generally considered as the modern languages. So this is quite intriguing, right? Mm. And these modern languages, by and large, still find it difficult um, to... To grasp that nuance that's in the culture Like I said, those languages submitted to Islam And so when you read those languages Instinctively, you start to get a different essence of what's being said Sometimes, just by the mannerism of the author You get an Islamic essence that is really hard to translate Into like a Western language
0: So how how has this issue of language affected the way In which Ottoman history is being taught and learnt? Because from what I'm, what I'm gathering from what you're basically alluding to, is that the very fact that it, today's history and and, and 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 academia is taught in the English language, That's which right. which is which was a language of power, yeah, and therefore when that language is used to then convey and teach and disseminate history, mm. that too comes from a biased and problematic position.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, th- there's been some fantastic works in English. I think English as a language or medium of power needs to be. I mean, I think Muslims need to learn English now because the access of information is English But also when you're a historian, for example um, You need to have access to the language of the people at the time Mm. and Very few of us have access to that information because it's just been cut off Right. So the Turkish Republic is formed. The language is cut off. No one can use that anymore and when you speak to most Muslims alhamdulillah Quran saved Arabic actually because the onslaught in Arabic was the same Mm. but Quran saved Arabic and alhamdulillah in places like Iran and in Pakistan in particular there was a sort of movement of safeguard in Urdu and and Farsi Mm. and now when I went to Malaysia they're trying to revive Jawi so they have two languages Malay and Jawi Jawi, right so Jawi is the Arabic script one so there are some movements to do that um, but it's really hard for Muslims and academics as well to get access to that language and so then you become disconnected from everything so now when muslims are reading about ottoman history they're dependent on what on the mediums that are available to yep. them english has become a lingua franca so they bo- read books in english mm. all right fine that's not a problem until you start to realize orientalism yep. ideology yep. Eurocentrism, and so on. and how does the average reader know how to decipher that information.
0: Which is which is correct, Islamically, which is incorrect, which is a bastardization of history, which is a distortion, which is enough exaggeration, yeah. which is politically yeah, driven. Yeah, yeah. All this stuff.
1: Yeah, and uh, that's why Muslim historians are then needed. Okay. Right?
0: So how important okay, so we can have Muslim academics. We yeah. have Muslim academics in abundance. Mm-hmm. But I think being a Muslim academic is something distinctly different to having an academic who identifies confidently in being Muslim, but also has a grounding in Islam in understanding yeah. their tradition or or understanding their, their area of expertise, yeah. right? Because I've met Muslim academics uh-huh. in the work in the work of decolonialism, anti-racism, Islamic history and they too have adopted a very secular orientalist frame in, in understanding history uh-huh. How important is it, would you say, to have a kind of good Islamic grounding mm. as a Muslim academic?
1: I just told you, Quran is essential to to our existence, and Quran fundamentally has to be the framework from which everything else emanates from. So, as a historian, if Muslims in the past were writing about Muslims in the capacity as Muslims from the sort of framework or epistemology of Islam, then why can't that be done now?
0: So, you, so, you, so then therefore, stud, you are not a normal historian. So, have you faced issues when you joined this fraternity?
1: There are some challenges. I'm trying to negotiate the two spaces. I, mm. I don't know if I've succeeded. Mm. I mean, I've had difficulties just visibly looking at Muslim. Mm. Um, to be fair, academia is getting better because more and more Muslims are entering academia. And that's great. Um, but
0: that's just demographic, and that's just numbers. What yeah.
1: About, what, what, about, what about.
0: Look, we don't want to write anyone off, yeah. right? But, but in terms of like, fine, Muslims are joining academia, but the quality of the Muslims and how they're dealing with their respective areas of expertise is also important.
1: It is important. I mean, I can't judge any given academic, but yeah. for myself, what yeah. I felt as a Muslim um, was that um, I wanted um, my students to see somebody that was like them. I wanted Muslims who are religious and from a particular framework to find a person... I mean, one of the reasons why I agreed to doing this podcast, because as you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a recluse and I don't do much of this, is that... He's not really. I love him, really. is, um, <laughs> is the fact that... Um, the charge was made against me That you should be more visible I uh, said that to you yeah, yeah you did And I appreciate that No because
0: I find it frustrating And I've said this to The other academics Who have been on this podcast That look Whilst I love the work you guys do And it's so important mm. I feel that sometimes These conversations are happening In ivory towers yeah. and, and within your own circles And the alarm To digest Accept, understand and then use it to revive and awaken is not happening yeah. The great scholars of the past were accessible to the Ummah yeah. The great the great scholars of the past were accessible mm-hmm. to the Awam And it was those their ideas and their take on any given uh, issue in society Was what helped society move and progress
2: yeah.
0: So whilst you, Ustad, you've described yeah. yourself as a recluse But yeah. I see value in the wealth of knowledge that you have And it's helped me
1: Thank you, I appreciate it that. It's
0: helped me So when I have to go and deliver a lecture on Ottoman history in an hour yeah. Which you find crazy yourself yeah, yeah, I, 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 have to, yeah. I have to come and ask someone and speak here But yeah, the thing yeah. is, I have this hour or not
1: do it at all yeah, yeah. You understand? So I have to choose yeah, the hour Yeah. yeah it's, no, look, I understand It's hard um, it, it Look, it's just so hard being a Muslim right now yeah. Okay. Um, like, how, how do you make sense of it? So I was telling you before when we were on our way here That uh, the Miraj story of Rasul Salam is beautiful. Excellent. I mean like the, the Miraj event in itself, a book can be written on that, right? And I was saying when Rasulullah is going to meet Allah Ta'ala, he says, you know, I see I saw prophets with thousands of followers, and then prophets of hundreds of followers, and prophets with some, and then prophets who had zero. And my students always was to deal with the zero followers, and I said, Those are the prophets that put dents in society. They were holding the fort And then when the next prophets came, people ran with it. And um then I explained to my students that we are all part of a clock. Some pieces are bigger than others, but the clock, all the pieces need to work for the clock to function, right? Maybe I'm a small piece, but I honestly felt, um, so a lot of people don't notice, but I invest in human beings. I'm a big believer. I'm not very good at social media. I'm not very charismatic in that sense. Check not out on Instagram.
0: That. His Instagram stories are sick. <laughs> Carry on.
1: Okay. And uh, my, my, my belief has been um, to invest in, that's what Rasulullah did. He invested in the Sahaba. He invested in people. He invested in their spirituality. He invested in them intellectually. He invested them in their motivation. He entrusted, thank you. He entrusted Islam in them, and then he allowed them to run with Islam. They went to Abyssinia. They went. uh, Musab ibn ibn Omar goes to Medina. Salman al-Farsi. Even after he dies, the Sahaba keep continuing. That human investment was necessary. I I made the decision to invest in people. Um, So in Turkey, I invest in my students. Mm. And I was once asked a question, like, you know, you're overworking yourself. And I said, well, we just got to sleep less.
2: Mm.
1: Now, it sounds bizarre. Yeah, I know. But my my beard has gone crazy. My dad is complaining because I make Mm. him look old. (laughs) 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 He's going to put henna in your beard. I was like, no, dad, it's not (laughs) going to work. But yeah, the the idea was, and I'm really passionate about this invest in people and let people run with Islam. And they need people, they need a framework. Um, We don't have enough of that. So, I think that's what we've got to try to do, which is addressing human beings. And as an academic now, I take that charge that you mm. put in my direction. And I say, yes, well done for calling me out on that. Mm. Um, the only thing I'm going to make excuses for is I made a decision to invest in a place like Istanbul. My students are Syrian, Palestinian, um, from the Balkans, not only Turks. So they're not only Turks? No, they're not only Turks. Okay, they're that's interesting. Kurds and everyone from, from, from the region, because Istanbul is becoming a center... And then I I make the decision to move to other Muslim countries. I told you before, I went to Malaysia and so forth, right? The idea is to try to give as much agency to Muslims on the ground because of that brain drain to help them because you can bring a 100 students from Istanbul to London or you can bring one teacher the other way around. Now, the charge was made to me that you've abandoned this community. Okay, that's a difficult... Even emotionally, that's been hard for me to balance. It's not just a charge of that. My mum's made a charge against me. You abandoned me as a son, which is even harder, right? Because she has rights over me. yeah. And um, the harder thing is, is it's a choice I made and it's a choice my family had to accept
0: Do you mind if I cite what you told me earlier about your mom struggling to losing her son to Islam?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, You know when you say stuff like I'm, I'm doing this for Dawah," I'm doing this for Islam, I'm doing this for the Muslim community mm. That sounds kind of crazy for people, human beings are practical people mm. So this sounds like, you know, what's he talking about? But I will say this, and I appreciate my family's commitment and sacrifice. I think my family's commitment and sacrifice is greater than my commitment and sacrifice because they enough. lost something important. Yeah, I'm the only son in the family, and and, and they lost that. It's something I have to learn to live with, and it's something that they've had to accept. And But when they came to Turkey, my students said to them, like, we really appreciate having him here. We're so grateful. And that, that was, it softened, I mean, two days ago... Many students sent me messages Saying when are you going to come back It's funny um, They start saying You're coming back right mm. And there's a human emotion In Muslim societies that I like Here it's harder But the decision I've made is Okay I'm going to live in Turkey But when I come back to England Then I'm going to try to give as much as I can So Sean. I've been here for two weeks So
0: And you've you, been very busy Yeah exactly me- Meeting and people That's events, right and,
1: and this is why um, uh, I agreed to do this So I, no, and look I appreciate it I appreciate you calling me out And giving me the platform.
0: And I'm honoured to have you on. Um, before we move on to the, the next topic of today's podcast, I'm gonna quickly ask you, um, you said that history isn't just uh, a case of reading, chronological events and incidents, mm. it's actually power, it's mm. language, it's ideology, yeah. right? So when one says when one says something like, oh, history is written by the victors mm-hmm. or the winners, yeah? mm-hmm. is there some truth to
1: that? Of course there's some truth to
0: that. Yeah, of course there is. So that then brings to the question then, if I, what is the current state of the quality of Ottoman historians as it stands?
1: I think there are some really good Ottoman historians um, That's not fair, there's many good Ottoman historians
0: Would you rate the likes of Quartet and Soraya and these guys? Yeah,
1: yeah for sure okay. their, their commitment to Ottoman studies is fantastic cool. um, The difference between how Muslims see Ottoman history And how Western academia sees Ottoman history Which is academia by and large Is that, let's look at Abdul Hamid Muslims are interested in Sultan Abdul Hamid the person Academia is interested in the Hamidian period The whole machinery, that's what they're interested And they will go into forensics Into trying to find those points, what happened in Yemen What happened in Syria, what about the women in the Ottoman Empire What mm. about the paupers, what about You know, what about cats in Istanbul You know, it's, it's mm. I'm mm. Crazy, the Muslims will keep coming to me Sultan Abdul Hamid, tell me about the Sultan And it we call it the, like the great man complex to some degree, and I understand that well, we, he, was,
0: he was kind of he was our great last, last not, great
1: Khalifa No, yeah, no. What I mean is like the great man complex in terms of Muslims are only interested in leadership, mm. and like I'm a historian actually or the ulama. Okay, so I'm. But that's because we we're in need of leadership. Yeah, this is what well, that's the valid point, isn't it?
0: <laughs> we're, we're, we're in need of
1: leadership. It's not only that, we, we look up to. We we need role models. Yeah. So we're looking for role models who are in position of authority exactly. Heart. So, but what I'm saying is it then shows you where the Scholarship is going yeah. so what I'm trying to do now that I've gone into academia is try to give the, the two trying to abridge the two, yeah, okay, and and try to one produce scholarship showing Muslims of the complexity mm. and two, at the same time, saying okay, let's look at these sultans themselves and what can we learn from that. And mm. um, generally, what the idea is, and you said about academics being in ivory towers, what you sometimes sometimes they don't even intentionally put themselves, yeah, in ivory you're tower. right, they, no,
0: no, they just end up being there yeah. and 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 being like kind of just. Unaware that they are just having
1: these conversations Amongst their own peers In their sure. own language and, and it's not been disseminated sure. to the masses No I get that And so what I'm thinking now The more conversation I've been having Is And I've been doing this in Turkey How can we take that Come down to And then pull, pull the society back up mm. Right mm. So those have, So look Quran is not easy by the way you no. know? So Quran Kalam no. Allah is hard So what we're trying to do then Is we're trying to raise the standard of society And so what I'm trying to teach my students in particular You have to be better than me Not like me, better than me. Mm. So then, and you instill in the generations after you that they have to be better than you. So the bar is continuously risen. Mm. That means that we have to find a way of building a language which is relatable and accessible and then teach them the complexities. I think human beings can learn complexities. I think human beings are very intelligent. And I think one of the mistakes the Muslim community is doing is it's making Muslims believe that they cannot achieve. That's incorrect. Muslims are no different from anyone else. People are intelligent. Allah Ta'ala created us, for crying out loud, do you understand? Absolutely And he gave us Qur'an, a very difficult book And, i give an example, when I was studying Arabic My Arabic teacher used to say Oh, this language is so difficult It's like, just killed us from the first day. <laughs> and yet Allah says in the Qur'an that he's made this Qur'an in Arabic so that you may know yeah. it Yeah So what's going on here? So, it, you can see the problem that we have, it's something internalized So, the Ivy Tower, yes I get But I think now we have a responsibility of trying to elevate and, and young people do want access to information. Young people do, not only young people, older people, everyone, mm. right? So how can we access the Muslim community first, make them feel motivated, make them feel proud of who they are, and give them that relevant information? And not only Ottoman studies, like I said, they should study everything, go for it, run. Um, I just chose Ottoman studies, and I'm trying to make that relatable. Okay. Um, yeah. So um, moving
0: on to uh, an area of Great contention, I would say, with Mm -hmm. regards to um, how Islamic were the Ottomans, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I ask you this because a couple of episodes ago we had Ustad Adnan Rashid who Mm -hmm. specializes in Mughal history and I I posited the same question to Mm -hmm. him, how Islamic were the Mughals? Now, there's many ways in which you can look at this and understand this, but the way I have kind of broken it down is to ascertain whether a dynasty or a daula or a state or something or a civilization was Islamic or not you have mm-hmm. to look at its governance, mm-hmm. laws mm-hmm. and the kind of predominant values would that be a fair kind of
2: assessment? Yeah okay, okay I can so, see
0: that. So, right. so, 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 according to you uh, and from your reading of an understanding of Ottoman history mm-hmm. how Islamic were the Ottomans from the perspective of their state, the institutions, the mechanisms, mm-hmm. the laws, the values?
1: If we're making the case Okay, if we're making the case of the Ottomans as a dynasty in regards to how uh, Islamic they were. I think in regards to the sultans themselves, that's an individual issue. Yeah, yeah, I think in terms of the mechanism in the way that the let's talk about the state. We're not talking about the individual. You know, I mean, you you, you, you can have a good Muslim ruler, a bad Muslim ruler. I, you can do for me stuff. the charge. The fi- for me, the charge I need to see the charge of why they were un-Islamic. Okay, I, I need to see that charge sheet. Of uh, how, how what are we, what is the criteria uh, to put forward to to make the case that the Ottomans were un-Islam
0: I will posit some things to you, but before we get to that would you say the laws which governed the Ottoman state Mm -hmm. were generally based on an interpretation of Sharia?
1: Yeah, of course they were They
0: They had had Sharia courts Okay, in some aspects, in all aspects in all areas of law, in some aspects of law
1: I think what's happening is that there's a constant Islamization as new conditions come in, so but the basis is Islamic Now we can nitpick a law here and there as things move on and negotiation takes place But the basis, the aqidah of that state is Islamic, it's la ilaha That's well known because look, the notion of dinu devlet Mm. They have this idea and I'll explain that din As we know it's din is the comprehensive worldview about life And then devlet is the state whose job is to safeguard the interests of that Mm. And that was the the philosophy of the Ottomans And the way that the Ottomans continuously in the text uh, Sovereignty belongs to Allah the sovereignty belongs to the Sharia. That was
0: something very consistent, wasn't but it? Of course
1: it was. I mean they understood when so my work I look at the idea of a constitutional caliphate. Yeah. They understood of holding the caliph to account on the verse in the Quran which is obey Allah, obey the messenger and those in authority from yeah. them And there's a huge debate on this. So mm. that's why I keep okay, I have said this before, but I'll say it. Again. The Ottoman state was built on three main pillars. The House of Osman, which is the Mulkiya, which is the executive branch. Yeah. The askeriyeh, which is the military, yeah. and the Ilmiya, which is the ulama, and these three power configurations work towards the machinery of running the Ottoman. The lineage. house
0: of the house of so the, so the Ottomans, so the the Ottoman lineage, yeah. the military,
1: yeah. and the ulama. Yeah, that's that's a simplistic way of looking at those three entities as the running of the Ottoman like state. And would you say that was very from very early on? Yeah. So one of the points I've made before is that whereas in Abbasid history the ulama are. Presented as people who talk truth to power mm. in the Ottoman state from the inception The ulama were power The ulama were part of the power of and the And
0: that's a very interesting point um, it, it, Hussein Yilmaz's book, The Caliphate mm. Redefined mm. Um, Are you aware of this book? Yeah, yeah. So he actually addressed some of these issues where he highlighted distinct differences between The Abbasid Khilafah mm. and the Ottoman Khilafah yeah, that's right. And distinct differences, and he actually went on to say that whilst, yes, they were indeed mystical and Sufi mm. and of tasawwuf and mm. Hanafi and Matudi etc. Mm. He goes, but the state was significantly more comprehensive from a mm. perspective of power yeah. than it was with the Abbasids. Yeah, of course. Right? That's how they survived. For, yeah. over six, like, right. for a very long time.
1: Right. Yeah, and the Ulama were part of this power configuration, and I've mentioned. Um, in this sense, in the Ottoman case, they have something called the Hal Fatwa, which is a state fatwa to remove a Sultan. Mm. So there's a fatwa to remove a Khalif from power as a Sultan, right? Um, that's quite fascinating. They're using something which is coming from Islam today. What do kind of
0: things would the what kind of things would the fatwa so, so for example f- f- from the kind of f- from the jurisprudence of removing a ruler mm. or re- or what justifies as rebelling against yeah. it would be if a khalifa or a ruler commits kufr right? Yeah. How would how would the o- Ottoman ulama understand a legitimate removal of a khalifa or a sultan? Hey,
1: sometimes it wasn't even that extreme. I mean, sometimes <laughs> it would just be you know, the fact that he's wasting money. Really? Yeah, yeah, because look, it's an issue of competency I don't think we've had this conversation enough yeah. Regarding Islamic history Which is, we talk about the idea that you listen to the Sultan So long as the Sharia is imp- implemented But the Ottomans were also concerned on the practical reasons Of like, is he competent? Is he wasting money? Is he forcing the military to just go out and do what not? Uh, and sometimes there was even like strange internal dynamics That oh. you can't deny um, But by and large, I mean, the, the the reasons were Had to be presented from an Islamic perspective And it had to be accepted from the ulama. Um and it's a complicated one because then there's the, the Sheikh al Islam himself and then there's the consensus culture, the Ijma'a culture amongst the Ulama. So don't, let's not just assume the Ulama in Istanbul. This is we're talking from Balkans to Cairo to Algeria in the Soleimani period. That they all played a role in the actual mechanism of the state. Ulama culture is really important in, when we read works of the Ulama. They they are you know, they're bouncing off each other. So they're not only so in the nineteenth century for example, when mm. I write um, my work looks at not only Ulema in Istanbul You see Ulema in Baghdad, Rashid Rada in, 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 in Egypt Ulema across the board But Ulema in India having a say So what's interesting about when you became a caliphate city Istanbul was not an Islamic city Istanbul was like in that sense the Islamic city mm. right And Muslims outside now have a claim over Istanbul Just like Muslims have a claim over Makkah and Medina no. So we, we have to understand how Muslims are thinking at that time
0: Makkah, Medina, Jerusalem, the capital of the Khilafah yeah And therefore everyone has a claimage to yeah. that
1: Yeah, now, because today we, we make these decisions that were you born what, what city were you born in? Yeah, yeah. Like We go as far as saying, oh, why don't you support Chelsea, you live in Liverpool Yeah, yeah. I mean, you live in London, sorry, right? Yeah. But in those days, it wasn't like that, people didn't have claims over cities in this way mm. Now, yes, it's true that Istanbul was still locked off from the rest of the world But mm. people did have this emotional agency, at least, of writing about what should happen in Istanbul mm and ideas resonated with one another but yeah so so you're confidently
0: presenting that you're actually you've actually turned the question the other way around mm. you're more interested in what is it that would justify the claim that they were un-Islamic? yeah that's right okay so let me present a few things to you then yeah mm-hmm. uh, first and foremost it, it, why is it consistently presented that Khalif Suleyman, rahimahullah, mm-hmm. when, and, and his qanun and his canons was the first manifestation
1: of the secularization of Ottoman yeah, law. You need to, We need to, not you, but we need to speak to scholars in Ottoman history who look at the notion of Urf yeah. as a Hanifi tradition in which the qanun has been placed within the culture of Urf. It's not in contradiction to the Sharia. It could not have been in contradictions of the Sharia for it to survive
0: Why is it presented as that? Why is it presented as Khalif Sulaiman was the first... Language
1: is one of the reasons, ideology is another one um, It's a little bit sloppy because it's mainly to do with laws of administration So
0: can you simplify what actually did happen then?
1: What what, what was it that Khalif
0: Sulaiman, what, what was it that he actually did that was understood and is being taught currently as something where he secularized law
1: So it comes under the framework of Siyasa So it's the prerogative of the Sultan himself and what he can do and what he can't do In terms of like let's just say um, people uh, are committing a particular crime and the Sharia is quite lax on it but he can say you know what this should be the punishment Um, You can cane these people that's discretion, that's allowed Yeah, exactly So that's how had, I mean, that's just one example That it, predates the Ottomans Yeah, of course yeah. It, it could be another issue to do with um, We need to build a mosque here What okay. does the Sultan say? Okay Yeah, I and mean, he would say You know, okay No, we're not going to build mosques At this moment in time Blah, blah, blah I mean, these are simplifications But the point I'm trying Because it's hard to explain to people But the point I'm making is that It's his prerogative As, as a Sultan What choices he can make Now, those are not outside the remit Of the Akid of Islam Of course They're just not Um Strictly within the framework of, mm. you know, the the way the fiqh is constructed. Okay. But the Orfe is within the Fik culture. Of course, it is. Especially so it's a weak understanding of what Orfe is. So Kanun was from the Orfe tradition in that sense. Okay. Um, with regards
0: to, um I'm sorry, that I have to mention this, okay. uh, but I did give you a heads up. Yeah. Um, with regards to, uh, sorry. Fratricide. Oh, yeah. That's so right. why did Ottoman Sultans kill their brothers? Yeah,
1: wow man, because they were crazy. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Look, <laughs> it, it, it's a hard one. As a historian, I remember when I teach this. Who started school, it? For some people say that it started from Osman Ghazi. Like really? Kind of far, but yeah. Look, the issue is this, is that the framework is, and I, I was talking about this before. The Mongol invasion is quite devastating, and I'm not trying to make excuses for the Ottomans, but the Mongols, for a long period of time, have decimated a lot of the particular Abbasid and Seljuk culture in regards to... I mean, the Seljuks also had their forms of violence, and so did the Abbasids. But for the Ottomans, the state-building process is important, and they rationalized that a rebellion, like an internal rebellion, which was very real, an attempt of an internal rebellion, Was problematic, and then there was a third caveat, yeah, which is the idea of thinking about doing a rebellion. And different sultans, for different reasons, actually exercised this. Um, It it takes prominence under Fatih's period because he's afraid of the interregnum that happens before, where brothers are fighting each other. Where the
0: three brothers, the Sultan Bayezid. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's right. And this total decimation of the Ottoman identity could have taken place. So the idea is, is that it's better to have one because they had this first past the post. Policy, which is the first son who makes it to Istanbul is the, the Sultan and Caliph Or Sultan, and then later comes mm. Caliph, right? And then there's a shift where the Janissaries start to choose mm. So the idea is is that, look, um, these people are going to fight each other and they're just going to, whatever um, So if you leave a brother lying around, the, the thinking was, I'm assuming Is that he will raise an army and come to Istanbul And his internal fighting would just be to the detriment of state, society and everything else
0: From, from my, from, from my uh, limited reading on, in, in this area um, the kind of early justifications which followed the uh, first interregnum of the mm. three sons of Sultan Ben mm. Yazid It was that um, to avoid rebellion, to avoid civil war, the preservation of the yeah. state and the deen and the ummah Right? Yeah. Now, even in the classical works of our scholars There is a basis of getting a lot of things which would generally be impermissible yeah. Permissible in for this greater maslaha yeah. of avoiding
1: further bloodshed uh, the, the, the preservation of the deen etc mm. etc But there is a critique culture of this, by the way. There is ulama critique of this. Okay. So it's not just one way or the other. You know this assumption that the Ottomans would do this. And then, the point I was making about the Mongol invasion is that the Ottomans do this for a period of time, and then it gets becomes so extreme. Why, why you mention what, what has the Mongol devastation got to do with fratricide? What it does is it creates a sort of a psyche and memory of a particular form of trauma, which is very violent. And so, I mean, state building is, is a kind of a, a, an aggressive process.
0: Oh, but with the exception to Timur, the Ottomans didn't really feel the brunt of uh, M- M- Mongol brutality, did they? Really? But the memory remains.
1: Okay. I mean, you, what I'm saying is like, you don't just come from a vacuum. Okay, so now any state that comes around or any group of people that come around, they've, they're coming from... So this is a bastard state. This is a Mongol invasion. And they're coming from here. And it's, it's devastation. So in, in that context, mm. that, and then it takes a period of time to get to here. And then the Timur aggression happens, which is like devastating for them. And then the internal fighting. So that, that whole process, actually, if you keep this constant war and rebuilding, constant war and rebuilding, um, so that's the psyche. But even they go, get to a point where they go too far, and then the ulama say, time out, this is out. And I think that's where we should give them the credit.
0: That they did come to a realization, they came that to a
1: realization, they came to a realization this is too far. So, when you ask me about Islam, how long does it take for a group of people to realize what they're doing is wrong? It depends, True. but they realized it was wrong,
0: okay. And uh, uh, and and were they really as creative as killing their brothers with silk ropes, or is this just a myth?
1: Yeah, I don't know, actually. Um, you know, the narrative at that time is really amazing in terms of people explaining how people were murdered, okay. and um. Possibly why, why couldn't they just exile their brothers to some faraway
0: province and, and, and let them be the governors there Or the leader of a battalion or, 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 or a commandant Probably
1: because they, those guys would have had ambitions for power Raise an army and come to Istanbul Which has happened um, You know, in Jem Sultan's case He goes to, to Europe, to France And then becomes hostage to the French mm. And now the Ottomans are like sweating and giving back Okay, look, now what? It's funny because they would they would have a problem with them going to France, but they wouldn't have a problem taking them out themselves. It's 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 a difficult moment in history. Mm. Now the question goes back to um, is that Islamic or not? I mean, clearly there's enough evidence to push that that could be haram. That's problematic, of mm. course it is. But does that make them un-Islamic in totality? No, that's what I'm saying. Mm. Um, you know what makes. Something un Islamic. For me, Ustaz, um, for me Ustaz, I mean what well, I mean is a
0: state. Do yeah, you know of course mean? yeah. For, so, for my understanding for a state or a civilization to be deemed un Islamic would mean that its institutions and its source for governance and laws mm. is not the Quran, the Sunnah, the ulama, Qiyas oh, and no, stuff like that. But this is the
1: thing, they justified it through that. Yeah. So they did have that framework. So, so, so
0: even fratricide
1: had an Islamic justification. Yeah, in it. a it's strange, in a strange way. And you know what? Actually, like I'm, I'm not going to make excuses for him I think the ulama today should sit down. Yeah. That's why I was saying, like, we need ulama as historians. I, I would love to see ulama rather than just saying it's haram. Sit down and let's go through the evidences. And this would be amazing that we can actually finally unearth this in terms of how we feel about what was taking place there, how they justified it from, how could you justify it, and so forth. Um, that, that would be a more interesting conversation for me mm. So um, nah, I'm not going to justify some of the things they did but, um, but but by and large, I mean, the sentiment you can see is still there
0: I mean, look, at the end of the day uh, and by the way, I'm not belittling the killing of brothers uh-huh. here, yeah just, just in case viewers and listeners, you're thinking this What I'm saying is that if the fundamental institutions of mm. a state Is still basis on Islamic source texts and, 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 and the ulama yeah. It's very difficult to argue against that civilizational state being un-Islamic yeah. As opposed
1: to a, a single policy right. or a single or, or a single act of a khalif or a sultan. My, my you know what my concern is with the narrative of fratricide and so forth is that many Muslims would then see that issue and it would shake their Muslim foundations, their Islamic foundations. Oh look what we're doing! Like this, is an Islamic uh, Muslims have just been the same as everyone else. Mm. And that's why I wanted to focus on less on the fratricide itself, but on the abandonment of fratricide, which mm. shows that this is a civilization which is changing, evolving, and growing. And it was Sultan Ahmed the first who. who yeah, who, Sultan who, Ahmed. I mean, it was Mehmed before him who decides, like, we're done with this because okay. uh, Murad just goes like okay. goes too far. And it shocked everybody. Like, what's going on here? When you say you got too far, what did you do? Yeah, he killed a lot
0: of people. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, eunuchs. Did oh, the Ottomans uh, snip their slaves? <sighs> Or did they buy the slaves snipped already? You know,
1: so they, they bought them. Okay. Um, so they bought, the
0: s- they bought them snipped? Yes.
1: So they didn't snip them themselves? Oh, man. So, um,
0: oh, for those of you who don't know, eunuchs are male slaves who, don't have, who have been castrated.
1: Um, let me just take a sip of water. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, okay. It, it, by and large, so was, they bought them buy and large. Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. That's okay, but you told me something else. You said they would only buy uh,
1: the eunuchs were never black or colored. No, they were. Yeah, they were. From Africa. Okay. They bought them but this was a practice that was done, I'm not justifying it, but this was a practice done in in, in the, by the Sassanids, by the Byzantines. By the Umayyads, this was not an Ottoman practice. Well, the Umayyads snipped their slaves Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, this was not an Ottoman practice. This was a practice that predates the Ottomans, and the Ottomans basically they do this practice when they come to Istanbul. No, the point I'm trying to make is okay. Fine, we know eunuchs
0: existed in previous civilizations and dynasties. The The point is that how come they were everywhere in Ottoman palaces?
1: They had really powerful positions. You know, some of them became grand viziers. You Know that, yeah, because that had, had access to the ears and the conversations of the palace, that's right, that is true uh, in, in that
0: context. So, um, that, that's TK if you're of yeah, yeah.
1: Look, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to, yeah, it, it's something that we, we, we can laugh about it now, but it's serious business. But no, it serious it's a particular business. culture that, um, once again. Even I would like to actually No, honestly as a historian Because I'm a 19th century historian mm. So I would like to see What the hell is going on here Actually, this is an interesting thing
0: Was it not a case that Because they were so close to power Literally living within the yeah, confines of power That they couldn't really get jiggy With the women of the of the Sultan Yeah, of course that. That's essentially what it is, right?
1: Yeah, if you're going to put it like that
0: Yeah, yeah okay <laughs> So um, did eunuchs exist right till the end? Was there at any point they stopped eunuchs? I think they existed even in the Hamidian state
1: Yeah, I think so
0: yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, um, the devishem system, devshem. So, oh. so, this for our viewers and listeners, yeah. this is where uh, the Ottoman state would uh, take uh, one son or a boy from a Christian household, yeah. uh, a policy that was generally implemented in the Balkans. Yes, um,
1: that sounds a tad unfair, sounds like a state kidnap. Was there any nuance to this law? Oh, yeah, like, a lot of people were sending their kids into the Dev system because you understand that, like, children who came out of the shared Shedman system. Look, you know, people don't understand Ottoman slavery properly. I'll give you an example. So, all, a lot of the Ottoman sultans are children of slave women. All right? Of course. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the,
0: m- many, the, uh, maybe not the vast, actually, maybe the vast majority yeah. of the mothers of the, the Khulafan sultans were concubines.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah? So, the way that they've internalized the notion of, like, slavery, the Janissaries mm. and so forth. Um, they were part of that, so uh, the way they've internalized and made sense of their world in that context, we have to understand for them they've seen the world in a totally different way. Um, the Devshirme system was a, a a privilege-based system, which is that you join the Janissary corps and you get particular privileges, and it was a system that they used, um, yeah, where they took children from but, particular Christian background. But wouldn't you say Ustad,
0: that basically when we present this narrative? Mm. Uh, of that policy that Mm. we are merely whitewashing and glamorizing state kidnap because that's one of the grievances which the serbs croats uh, and other other um, Slavic uh, yeah. and, and, and Christian people from the Balkans—they cite even to today that the Turks yeah. should kidnap our sons. Now we appreciate that they went on to do great, to do great and wonderful things. They went to become high-ranking viziers and soldiers yeah. and etc. We, 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 yeah, accept that. I
1: mean, look, to, from today's morality, that would look kind of, but at the time when we look at the way that the world was operating, mm. um, we don't see. I mean, I'm sure people were traumatized at lo- losing their kids, but we don't see that level of trauma because even there, we we see that. It was an opportunity for many to, to go into the state system. And the, the main machinery was the state machinery. And to be, you know, imagine having a son who's who's going into the state administration mm. and he's going to have a high-end job. Um, I would like to see as a historian, I mean, there are works on it, but I would like to see how the, the written accounts or just of how people felt. Um, we're, 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 we're making this something that's wrong, which is mm. fine. Mm. But what I want to see is, the, the accounts of what people are saying at the time Which would be far more interesting in terms of How to make sense of how people were living in those churches. No, no, no doubt I mean, I've
0: read some I've, I've read some chronicles um, From the Balkans Who mm. praised in, in terms of giving their sons away, yeah, yeah. but I've also at the same hand also read very sad testimonies of mothers who are heartbroken. Yeah, yeah. Uh, about but you about know what? It's no different than
1: a, a a a state going to war today and conscription and taking mm. people and said you're going to have mm. to join the armed forces and fight for us. Did, that, did, did did that policy apply
0: blanket in the region or were
1: there certain nuances as to when and if? And when no, there were nuances. Applied? Nothing is blanket. In that okay, sense. so okay, so for my, please tell me
0: if you yeah. if, if if you've heard of this before. For my. Again, my limited reading on basically what a Yung Cortez and others mm. mentioned was that this policy was cut, was justified. Mm. In regions, lands, and cities where the Ottomans fought and lost their soldiers in those yeah. in those campaigns, yeah, so as a kind of compensation, they would then go yeah. on to take. Well, right. But where a, where a city, town, or region basically gave and surrendered, they yeah. wouldn't take. Yeah. Some, yeah. Is, is that generally yeah. the kind of that's, justification? That's generally the okay, justification. so so it, it can also
1: be seen as state conscription. In a way, it can be. I mean, look. Joining the military in any shape or form throughout history, there is a level of um, coercion and and authority Mm. that's that's exercised. Mm. Yeah, I'd I'd like to make understand how that was taking place. I mean, Mm. that would have been really fascinating and interesting. but it is what it is. I mean, I'm not going to make excuses for that.
0: Go- going back to something that you want to that you mentioned earlier, and I do want you to elaborate on it. Um, one of the kind of accusations that's levied towards um, not just the Ottomans, but the Abbasids, the Umayyads, the Mughals, and 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 many other Muslim dun- uh, dynasties who are Turkic, Persian, mm. Arab, whatever. And that is that. Hey, you guys can criticize the Europeans for the transatlantic slave trade, mm. but the Muslim empires. Mm. A- and we'll get to the issue of the of the language of empire soon yeah. uh, later on. But you were also involved in in slave trade. Is there a, is there a difference between the transatlantic slave trade and the slave uh, the and the slavery that was that the Ottomans and others were
1: involved in? I mean, the simple answer is yes. But it then it now comes down to people's today's sensitivities of whether they think that's sufficient mm. or whether they're satisfied with with any form of slavery. Mm. And then that goes to the question of the slavery in Islam in itself. Mm. Um, but it wasn't. I mean, they still applied the law. For example, of that, um, slaves had to be ch- had to be fed and clothed in the same way as their master. F- slaves who became Muslim had the right to be free. Um, being part of the Janissary Corps was once again a privilege mm. because you had certain um, agency to access to resources and so forth. Um, slaves, like I said, became part of the the palace domains themselves, and people became sultans from slaves and grand viziers from slaves. So, in that sense, the uh, it, it, it's how do you define the word slave The definition becomes important here And I think there is a debate that needs to be had On that itself mm. I think the comparison between the Ottoman uh, The Ottoman mannerism, manner of doing slavery And the transatlantic slavery Are still very different I mean,
0: I would say it's worlds apart Yeah
1: it, it, it is um, And um, while I am sensitive towards This whole idea of slavery But I, I, I think the Ottomans From what I see are still very different An unfair comparison? Yeah, I think I think it is an unfair comparison, personally, just because um, different time, different ways. I mean, colonial powers were savage in the way that they were doing things. Um, mm. Whereas,
0: well, they were wiping out entire peoples in yeah, North I mean, America, in yeah. South America, in Australia. Yeah. So, and and then kind of literally shipping. Mill- hundreds and thousands of free people from Africa Then forcing yeah. them to accept Christianity yeah. They're not even al- Even after accepting Christianity Not even allowing them to be in the same churches as them yeah. So I don't think the Ottomans or any Muslim dynasty Or entity or polity ever did that
1: Look I mean in every form of slavery There's going to be an element of coercion I guess And manipulation yeah. that we, we can lay a charge at them mm. But that level of violence wasn't there mm. There wasn't an attempt to, to do that I mean th- that level of abuse wasn't there mm. Um, but there is a hierarchy for sure within the yeah. society, yeah. and what I'm saying is that um, even within that that system and that hierarchy, there were opportunities to make it to the top, okay. which is quite interesting.
0: Which was never then the transatlantic slave trade, uh, really.
1: I've never seen it. Yeah. I, um, so, um, but in the case of the Ottomans, like I said, I mean, you could become Grand Vizier. That that in itself is something that needs to be examined. Um,
0: During the Ottoman state, uh, mm. f- throughout the kind of 600 year span. Um, were there pubs in the state, public drinking houses, uh, no, uh, uh, beyond the quarters of the Christians and the Jews?
1: Oh no, I mean some non-Muslim areas had drinking areas Of course, the, um, and there's a charity basis for that, yeah. that, that they Now whether, whether Muslims are frequenting in those places is possible, okay. yeah. but Muslims couldn't get licenses for it
0: Okay but from your reading there's never been a case where there were like equivalent
1: of pubs in Muslim areas Within the state? Not that I know of. I mean, it, if it's happened, I'd like to see the information for that. But I mean, if the question is being asked to me if, whether Muslims are doing things of that nature, it's very possible. But this, there, there are mechanisms of the state taxing things like alcohol and sale of alcohol and so forth. Mm. But it, it would have been exceptional, I guess, to, to assume that a Muslim could have got a license to sell alcohol. Okay. Um, there's another claim uh, made by.
0: Uh, Muslims who specialize in other uh, areas of Islamic history And that is, whilst, yes, the Ottomans had a glorious longevity to their rule and their existence Mm -hmm. and their state building um, Unlike the Umayyads, unlike the Abbasids, unlike the Khulafa Rashidin, unlike Mm -hmm. the Mughals, unlike... you know let's say even even the Mamluks to some mm-hmm. degree um they never really produced quality and celebrated scholarship
1: um i think that's unfair i think it goes back to my point before about is is it that they're not producing good scholarship or is it that we don't have the ability to access that scholarship
0: we don't really know who 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 from who from the 600 years of ottoman history do we celebrate as scholars today that where we we where we, where we, where we learn about them in fiqh we learn about them in theology mm-hmm. where we learn mm-hmm. about, that's one. Towards the latter. Zahid Al
1: Ibn Abidin. Okay. The list can go on. Um, Sayyid Nursi, Mehmet Akif, Hamdi Yazad, Musa Kazim. The list can go on. People read them, but it's just that people are not accessing them because that that's something that they need to get access of. I mean, some of the most seminary scholars, even now, there's a book written by Samuel Youb, Who's a scholar. It talks about ulama in Egypt that were very influential in the 18th century in regards to. Uh, Hanfi fiqh and so forth, it doesn't end Would you say then, so when I've, when I've been faced with that question
0: Yeah I've countered it by saying, look guys, yeah No disrespect to the giants who, uh, of our ulama who lived throughout the times in the past But maybe have we ever wondered that during the Ottoman period The ulama of that time didn't actually have time to re- write books As much as others in other regions But they were literally part of the state
1: itself Yes, they were part of the state But they also did produce It's just, like I said, my charge is And I'll make the same charge openly here Which is Muslims don't know anything about 600 years of Ottoman history Forget ulama They don't know anything Is that the fault of the ulama? Or is that the fault of us who who don't access any of the information? Okay So this is part of the problem here I think we need to take responsibility that Look, when the Ottomans collapsed to some degree And I, I make this case very clear, the Ottomans were not colonizers and they weren't colonized. They were abolished. And when that happens, that colonial interaction that takes place within the Ottoman world is quite seismic, where we become disconnected from information. Now, there is old scholarship that survives. And that's because, by and large, those societies at the time, had no problem with pre-Ottoman scholarship's existence. but. Ottoman scholarship existence is problematic because it can revive a particular mindset that is still very current And, right? it, can,
0: and, and, and it can reconnect a people who are seeking some kind of resurgence or yeah, revival So
1: I said this about my mosques When you see Ottoman mosques today, right? Turkish mosques that are building You in asked Ottoman. me this yeah. So when I'm visiting you in Istanbul
0: yeah. I assumed incorrectly that Hagia Sophia was the Ottoman architectural mosque. Right. You said that wasn't. No. You said we took that from the Greeks, from the Byzantines.
1: So, so, yeah, so that's the Byzantines. And Fatis Mosque was built by a Greek. Then you went and took me in these other corners. Yeah. Do you remember the, the Hamidian Mosque? That's, right. that's right. And they looked completely different. They looked completely different. The styles were Andalusian. The styles were, very, you know. Uh, it's amazing because the imagination of the Ottoman Mosque still, even now, today is 16th century. Why? Why People don't see the 19th century mosques. Or, you know, why? Because that imagination is taken away from you. So the only imagination we have is we have to go all the way back in time that's irrelevant to us. Mm. And the, imagine of the n- imagination of something which is very close to us, mm. we don't want to know. Uh, forget that. Ask young people today, 9-11. Have no, imag- no recollection of 9-11. Um, ask them about, you know, um, American invasion of Iraq first time, Gulf War. Mm. Um, ask them about the creation of the state of Israel. Mm. Ask them about World War I, World War II. The memories don't even go that far back because everything is now. Yeah. And yet, I think we were suffering from that to some degree, where this whole corpus of work, mm. um, the access to this, it's hard. I mean, like, imagine you need to learn Arabic, you need to learn Ottoman Turkish, you need to learn other um, Islamicate languages, you, you maybe need to learn French, German, Armenian, Greek. Then, there's access to Baghdad, access to Istanbul, access to Konya, access to... Damascus Damascus, or access to Kosovo Like, who's gonna put in the effort? Mm. Who's gonna put in the effort to do that? So, I'll give an example When I have friends who are Arabs Who, when they write about Mustafa Sabri Efendi They write about it from the perspective of what he wrote in Arabic But he wrote in Ottoman Turkish too And there's a large corpus of works in which he was a journalist He wrote in many newspapers So, they can't access that And that access is important because if they want to make sense of his last piece of work, which is called mm. Marco you can see the process, his brain process. First, he was writing Ottoman Turkish, then goes to Egypt, Russian Arabic.
0: Would you say someone like Yusuf al-Nabahani, rahimahullah, was a celebrated figure. Yeah, Yusuf
1: al-Nabahani was very close to Sultan Abdul Hamid II, and he writes a lot of works, poems, and and whatnot. He's not the only one. That's what I mean. Like all of these people, put them in their place at the time, and then put the pieces together. Um, a lot of them did a lot of good works. Mm. Yeah.
0: So, 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 just before we kind of bring the podcast to a close, you are still strongly maintaining huh. that the ottoman uh, dynasty the state mm. the the doula was islamic
1: yeah like i said i i think the charge needs to make, be made about what makes it un-islamic and i think this is the problem like muslims if muslims are doing this of trying to like knock the building down i think they need to be a little bit careful i find a
0: problem and, and it's something which i've I'm, I'm, i've come to terms with now Um, Not referring to the Ottomans as an empire Because an empire has a very distinct definition In how it manifests its power When it goes to, when it spreads So for example, if you look at the British Empire The French Empire, the Spanish Empire You find that it has a very violent uh, and, and a very, uh, very uh, oppressive manifestation, of how it consumes people, mm-hmm. and how it implements its ideology, its mm-hmm. faith, whatever. And I don't think that's a fair usage of the language to describe not just the Ottomans, but but generally any kind of. Like I, I, I wouldn't really refer to the Mughals as an empire, because they mm-hmm. did not force, they did not, they're not, they didn't yeah. necessarily colonize the the Hindu masses, the Abbasids do not necessarily colonize and enforce their idea their deen mm. upon the people, and I don't think it's fair to even refer to the Ottomans an empire. Do you,
1: do you find it a problem to refer to the Ottomans as an empire? It's interesting. It comes down to how, like, so I've had these conversations with colleagues of mine before about. So one of the things I've tried to do is exercise how we use language, mm. especially in the English medium, and how English as a language, how helpful is it to explain? Like Ottoman experiences. So, for example, I'm. I find it problematic to use the word pan-Islamism. I don't like it. And that's what that's because Islamism is a problem. Ex- Islamism comes from pan-Islamism, yeah, right? Yeah. And the idea as of, is political Islam. We were talking right, about this. exactly. So to make this charge that there is a political Islam Then there's an Islam. Yes. All right. Now, what did what did the words that the Muslims use at the time? They used the term Itihad Islam. They had a, 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 a. Now, someone will say that we're just translating that, but mm. translations are loaded. Mm. Um, and so now, does pan-Islamism reflect it had Islam? And I just don't think it does. It could be the same phenomenon, but the gaze is different. Right? So, how can I explain it? I've like, said this before, like dawah. We say we do dawah. Oh, okay, fine. And now, if you call that Muslim missionary activity, a lot of Muslims will be irked by that. They'll say, wait, wait, hang on a minute. That doesn't quite... That's not fitting anymore. Now, that's how it might be perceived from that perspective. Yeah. And it might be the same phenomenon. But how you look at something with your own agency, in terms of the words you use, yeah. in terms of how you feel about what you're doing, and how external words are used to explain your agency, it's an issue here. Mm. So now the issue of going back to empire, is how comfortable are Muslims using the word? A lot of academics are trying to...
0: I'm not comfortable using it.
1: Right, and a lot of academics are trying to strip this power dynamics away from the word empire by saying, you know, the Romans were an empire, the Byzantines were an empire, so we're placing the Ottomans within this context. Some academics have tried to exercise the idea Of using the word Ottoman domains Ottoman, uh, you know, and and, and whatnot I've exercised that and tried that I'm talking about internally as Muslims I think there's a lot of 19th century baggage So when we think of empire We think of the British and the French And I think that's the problem with it and we um, I mean, think of the Romans I and mean, the Byzantines, but generally, when we think of empire, well, it's colonialism. It's colonialism. And yeah. those of us who live in the United Kingdom, yes, yeah, we understand. It's like even empire. today, yeah. um, you know, we were talking; they were talking on television the other day about obes and so yeah. removing the word empire, yeah. and people got really triggered in this country. Yeah, of course. It's they intriguing would. because they they are attached to the notion that they were this great empire, mm. and so empire has this connotation. Now, if you look at that in mind. Then, when you call the Ottomans an empire from that perspective, I can see why Muslims would be agitated by it. Mm. So this is where the question: the Ottomans didn't call themselves technically an empire. Did A- the did, you know the Ottoman khulafa?
0: I'm not going to say this. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to say those that came before the eight that came before Salim, yeah. but yeah. those that came after Salim, who were khulafa, yeah. did they see themselves as Turkic rulers or rulers of the Muslims? Did they see themselves as Islamic rulers? And they un- used
1: multiple titles, man I mean, like, you know when you look at Islam Qayseri Rum, Shangin, Shah yeah, exactly, all of that, um, right yeah. Because th- for them, they saw Islam as a civilizational worldview about life mm. they, they saw themselves as like, you know, Islam is like for everything now And so, yes, I'm, I am a Caliph and I am your Emperor and I am your, your whatever I'm all of these things, yeah, because I'm in charge now mm. And so would they have exercised that type of language? Yes, of mm. course does that mean that? Um, but did they see themselves as Muslim rulers, as yeah, opposed to, as opposed to Turkic rulers? No, of course they saw themselves. I mean, why would they then Why would they be obsessed with using this word caliphate? There's no need for it. Mm. Yeah, but why? What are they? What are they trying to attach themselves to? They're trying to attach themselves to a particular institutionalized political discourse of Sunni Islam, and they want to be a part of that, right? So they want to be a part of the Umayyads. They want to be a part of the Abbasids. They want to be part of the legacy of the Khulafa Rashidun. Really fascinating. World War One. So when Makkah and Medina was being lost, by and large, right? The Hijaz, shall I say? The Ottomans, yes, were traumatized. But when they lost Baghdad, it was a huge shock to their system. It was a huge, and in their work, you can see we lost the center of the Abbasid Caliphate. That's mm. what they write in.
0: Because they still held it very close to their heart. Because
1: it was the gateway to the Arab world. Yeah. Right. Mm. So what you see here is is um, and a lot of these imaginations in their mind. I mean, so they believed that. No Khilafah, no Islam
0: Is that how they understood it?
1: Well, they understood Islam as a comprehensive worldview about life, and that that comprehensive worldview about life cannot be implemented once the state is gone.
0: Then they're no different to their dynastic predecessors. Then could, yeah, of could, course, many
1: before them. So, but that is
0: the default understanding of the institution of khilafah within our tradition. That's how the Ottomans uh, with exception yeah. of the last eighty to hundred years, with with all other external pressures and attempts to redefine and etc.
1: etc. But that's generally yeah. There. And I'm saying this not from the perspective of the sultans. I'm I'm saying this from the perspective of the ulama themselves. There's a wonderful book written by Mona Hassan. She's a scholar, and she talks about this collapse of the Abbasids and the collapse of the Ottomans and trauma that the ulama feel on both sides. And she does a comparative study, and you can see the, the trauma is the same, and how even then the ulama are like, going, "Oh, wait a minute, what's going on?" Okay. When you say collapse of
0: the Abbasid, you're talking about twelve fifty eight or fifteen seventeen?
1: No, the not fifteen seventeen. Twelve fifty eight. That's right. Okay. And she it's this comparative study, which is intriguing. Like, mm. so what happens is like. Many ulama are now writing. So, mm. for example, Mustafa Sabri friend, is really unique. I, I now keep going to him. So he has this idea in 1908 of trying to institutionalize a constitutional caliphate. That's his obsession. Mm. Then, when World War One happens, his obsession is now caliphate alone. We lose the institution, Muslims are going to be left in their own. Caliphate collapses. Then his obsession is aqidah We need to safeguard Aqidah. We mm. don't safeguard that. we finished. Every, we're finished. So you yeah. can see his list of priorities and mm. how he operates. That's his work. Um, It's very difficult for me to then make a loaded uh, judgment on how he was thinking and he wasn't the only one thinking that way Mm. So the point I'm making is he was a a sheikh al-islam of the ottoman domains Mm. So he's reflective of a particular mindset. So for the Ottomans What I'm saying is we can one could critique saying this is islamic. This is not islamic That's irrelevant for me. What's relevant for me is how they felt Mm. right and they felt islamic Mm. and they felt islamic from their purview of the culture that they were Exercising Which was Islam
0: Yeah
1: Now it's really nice Now having a crystal ball And going back in time And saying you're yeah, not good enough And I think that's something.
0: I, I think sometimes When we talk about this And we critique previous but What
1: charge will history Put on us today Exactly
0: I always say this Yeah when they look back at us Yeah history what history charge will be Put on us it, Right yeah, so, yeah.
1: so we have to be a little careful I said to you before That I'm uncomfortable When I write about Muslims Of the past Yeah I always say And Allah knows best Because I don't want Those Muslims of the past To say you know what This guy lied about me Or made charges against me Which is not true And he published it and people read it, that for me makes me very nervous. It makes me very nervous. So mm. um, I we're so flippant in the way that we talk about human beings, mm. especially human beings are dead mm. because we assume because they're dead, it's, we can just do that. And no, we have far more of a responsibility of now safeguarding the integrity of those individuals because they are dead Sorry. and they can't defend themselves. Right? Um,
0: how significant was the abdication of Mutawakkil III, the last Abbasid Khalif, the defeat of the Mamluks in March Tabik yeah. and then Salimi al announcing himself as Khalifa. How significant was that event, or was it not as significant as it's purported
1: in 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 the way we read it? Perhaps was it was it a big thing for the Ottoman? It, it's difficult to know. I mean, it could be that Salim just went yeah fine whatever. Just he's so confident he just walked down into said just I'm done, or it could be the fact that Salim's thinking you know what I finally made it. It's difficult to know. A lot of the ideas we have in that period are explanations of the past. Yeah. So whether they were celebrating that we've become caliphs or not, I don't think that happened. to say, but was it a big thing
0: for the House of Osman? I
1: think I think it is a seismic shift in what the House of Osman has become. Yeah. I think the, the, the seminary moments are um, Orhan Ghazi, so yeah. not Osman, but Orhan. Yes. Yeah, yes. Um, because Orhan is the one who actually names the dynasty after his father, right? No. Then I think Bayezid's time, because what Bayezid is, he institutionalized an idea of Devlet itself yep. Bayezid is obsessed with the notion of Devlet yep. And then Fatih's conquered Istanbul, for sure, you can't deny that Fatih's conquer of Istanbul changed the game totally um, The fulfillment of a prophecy n- fulfillment of a prophecy and, 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 the te- and the entrance to Europe Exactly, and not only that, I mean the, the access to a center of power, yeah. right? And it's an Ottoman center of power yeah. So Mecca, Medina, Baghdad, Damascus, Cairo, prior Ottomans, this is Ottoman now It's a new thing Right, and then after that you'd have to say Salim's conquest in terms of centralizing So Orhan Orhan
0: naming the dynasty after his father Osman Bayezid who was fixated with the creation of of a state Mm. Um, The conquest and the fulfillment of the prophecy of the taking of Constantinople And then you would put 1517 up there.
1: Yeah, I think in that sense, when you see that progression of that period of time, in that sense, Selim's, Selim's efforts of trying to centralize the Arab provinces to Anatolia, uh, Istanbul, and the, the Balkans, in that sense, is seismic. Because it changes everything. Mm. It now becomes, a produ- the Muslim influx is large, mm. the Muslim production of knowledge, from Arabic now impacts. So you know, prior to this, so Hussein Yilmaz's book you spoke about. Yeah. One of the most interesting he took, things he talks about is Ottoman Turkish itself. Yeah, Ottoman Turkish prior to Selim and then Suleiman was the ulama were uncomfortable using this language. They yeah. were still using Arabic and Farsi yeah. as the language of intelligentsia. They weren't confident in making that fusion, were they? Right. Now that Istanbul becomes a centre and Selim has now centralised everything yeah. Ottoman as a language starts to feed off Arabic mm. And there's far more interaction And they have these policies of bringing works from Egypt and so forth Bringing them to Istanbul and this axis So um, even if we make the charge that it's not a caliphate okay, or, or that it was important, not important But the fact that they managed to do that Changed the dynamic of what it meant to be the Ottoman Sultanate mm. For sure That, that And then Suleiman after that mm. Baghdad and so on, it just expands out so in that sense, you have to say that that is a seismic moment um, You know, in terms of the land span mm. uh, Which I I believe hit its pinnacle
0: under Suleiman mm. um, Was there ever an objection mm. to the legitimacy of the claim to Khilafah Because they were the first dynasty who are non-Arabs to have made that mm. claim
1: So you're talking about the Quraysh hadith?
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm not the, uh, the Hanafis uh, within the the, the Muhammad position within the Hanafis yeah. is that a non-Quraysh can be a Khalifa Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's fine. So, so, yeah. so amongst the Turks and the Ottomans, that's mm. fine. Did you ever find in your reading that mm. non-Turks objected to to their claim to Khilafah? I couldn't find
1: anything. If See? they if they did, I just don't think the Ottomans cared. <laughs> so no, but it it you know, I mean, imagine imagine the cards they hold holding in their hand. Yeah. Like, okay, let's just say, let's just take India, for example. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter what they think now. Yeah. You know, I've got Makkah, Medina, Damascus, Cairo, Istanbul, Balkans. Look at what I'm holding. You know, one of the charges, Timurland, for example, when Timurland goes to war with Be'ezid, yeah. So Bayezid actually says he's part of the Kaya tribe. He doesn't say he's part of the Ottomans in that yeah. sense, right? And Timurland says, I'm a... Um, my ancestry is Genghis Khan Yeah. Do you know who you're dealing with? Yeah. Do you understand? Yeah, Th- yeah. That matters in that yeah. sense So now If you're going to put the charge To the Ottomans That you're not a caliph It doesn't matter What am I holding? Mm. N- not like Najaf, Karbala, J- Jerusalem look, look at what I'm holding So whether they fought like that or not But they would have fought I guess That I've got all these cards And yes I am the caliph but,
0: and, and at the same time I'm putting aside Osman Don Fordi and the Sokoto, no mm. one else
1: really claimed
0: it whilst they did
1: You know what's important, I think this is what's lacking like in, in studies regarding uh, the, um, the Ottoman Caliphate Is One, what are the conditions of a Caliphate? Absolutely And two, what are the conditions of the Khalifa? Absolutely I think Muslims need to look at that and then see whether the Ottomans fulfilled that And by and large you can they see did. Yeah, exactly They the, did Because you know what we're doing is we're taking credit away from the ulama Yeah We're assuming that the ulama have colluded in some shape or he form did. But let's look at the work, the ulama throughout history, what I've noticed is in the ijma, There's always been people that would critique something that was yeah, yeah, was claimed, right? No, the battle was fulfilled yeah. and, the, and, and and in terms of the responsibilities of the state and the khalifa were generally fulfilled yeah. I mean even in the 19th century when certain ulama critiqued Abdul Hamid
2: mm.
1: It's intriguing, they didn't say that they critiqued the house of Osman as being a caliphate they, mm. The charge they made was Abdul Hamid wasn't fit enough to be caliph Interesting. You understand, and this was the movement that was happening in, the, in mm-hmm. that sense. Um, you recently wrote uh, a, a, a fairly long piece uh,
0: mm-hmm. for the Yaqeen Institute, mm-hmm. uh, uh, reconnecting. It'll be it'll be on the screen. Um, re, you know, urging the Muslims to kind of reconnect with Ottoman history and yeah. trying to understand it, and that there's a sense of a, a kind of collective amnesia. Yeah. Um, elaborate a bit. I, I, and I'm not asking you to recap the entire piece, but, but, but what, what's the Because you, you already used that term collective amnesia. Yeah. So, where does understanding Ottoman history fit, especially the challenges faced by Khalifa Abdul Hamid, mm. World War I, and those challenges of the Young Turks, mm. um, nationalism, Arab nationalism, mm. separatism in the Balkans, internal, external? Mm. Um, where does all
1: of that fit in with the state of the Ummah today? Well, okay. Uh, so, in terms of the Yaqeen Institute article, I look like like I said, I'm really appreciative they gave me a platform to write, and then they allowed what I wrote in the way I wrote to to go out there. Um, now, I yes, I was insistent on this idea of collective amnesia, and you know, I've spoken to psychologists before. I have a friend who's a Muslim and he's a psychologist, and mm. like one of the questions he asks is, how can you have collective amnesia? How does that happen? Right? How does collective amnesia happen? But the idea is is that there was an idea which was prevalent in a particular group of people at one moment at time and now that idea is no longer prevalent, it, it disappeared, 100%. right? And so what's happened is there is a, a moment in, in Islamic history globally where Istanbul is the center, where the Ottomans are a power, where people are aware of the name of Osman and the Ottomans and Abdul Hamid II and so forth and now, like 100 years later, as I said to you before, somebody said to me that, does Sultan Abdul Hamid come after um, Salah al How did that happen? What's going on here? I mean, you have to say that the collapse of uh, the Ottomans, the formation of the nation state, the ideologies that come about during the nation states, uh, programs, various programs in the various provinces, colonization, the idea of empire, the superiority of the West in terms of this intellectual production, all has created um, multiple like divots in the mind of Muslims To the point that that no longer becomes important Muslims, like I said before, are only interested in the day-to-day That's not their fault That's what's happened And history and the learning of the past has become a, seen as a privilege I felt the same, right? So when I would mention something like the Ottomans Why should anyone care? Which is the question Why should I care? But it, but it should matter Because actually that... It's about identity Your identity is being shaped for you You are being told who you are and who you ought to be and who you were That's problematic That's
0: majorly problematic Because right. okay. we have no agency to define who we are, where we're going and what we
1: were Right and, and Islam has clear instructions as to how we navigate with these issues Yeah, exactly So now look, some of the things we talked about, about some of the problems with the Ottomans I don't mind people calling me on that There's some mistakes I'm sure I've made in that sense, because my expertise is the 19th, 20th century. They want
0: Muslim, they want ambia. Yeah, Kholas. that's right.
1: But here, in now, in our process, our focus in terms of people who have the, the ability to to access information, knowledge, and so forth, we are still quite ill informed, and that that is a problem for me. We don't even know what's happening in our localities at times. Now, that's a challenge for me. So, how do we make this period important for people? It's important because it shows from the 19th century onwards how the colonisation of the Muslim mind took place that for me because once the Ottomans collapsed the Ottomans are a form of resistance towards a particular hegemonic worldview about life
0: would you say they were the last standing of Islamic civilization?
1: yeah of course they are of course they are I mean like like I said they they were not colonisers nor were they colonised and you had to you had to break that with a sledgehammer so that you know nation states are created resources people human beings are becoming resources again and so forth right so here now Gradually, over time, um, this like indoctrination process takes place in the Muslim mindset, where this is not important, this is irrelevant, who cares about this, let's just keep going forward. That for me is, is troublesome. And there's a lot you can see in that period that you start to see how the, the project of the colonization of the Muslim mind takes place. I think that's something we need to pay attention to. So that collective amnesia concerns me. Mm. And then, like I said, so we can't even go back in time to the time of Rasulullah right? Personal. And we're talking about Muslim scholarship, 600 years is gone. Mm. And you and I are now speculating about many things about what happened in the Ottoman period. And we're having this conversation. This should be common knowledge in Muslim societies. Mm. This is our history, for crying out loud. Absolutely. You know, you... Like why don't we know this? And and why why are we saying this is Turkish history? Or this is the history of the Turks? Well that's something that's been fed to that's, yeah, that's been fed to of us. Of course. You're Muslim. Yeah. And uh, so in that sense, like why should you not be invested in what people did in the past? Mm. And we shouldn't be uh, apologetic about the way that we present our history. I mean you made some valid points about points of criticism. I mm. think we should We should interact with those points of criticism and see what mistakes were made Mm. and if they were mistakes and if they're nuanced and how we can learn from it. How do we even
0: begin? One of the challenges I face when I visit Islamic societies in the UK and MSAs in Canada and elsewhere, Mm. (coughs) one of the challenges I face is uh, a question that keeps reoccurring and that is how do we even begin to take ownership of our narrative? And I guess a cliched response would be to reframe the epistemology or the the moral basis of, of our tradition or the conversation, right? So how would one even begin to make sense of the Ottoman history without understanding the realities uh, and the destructive nature of European colonialism, the birth of the secular nation-state etc etc. How can the Ummah, Muslims, whether they be ulama, mm. activists, academics, doctors, taxi drivers, wherever they may be, mm. how do we even begin to start kind of warming up that engine to think of an alternative? And an alternative which existed for far
1: longer than these nation states. Yeah, it's it's simple. It's la ilaha. I ask, I ask my students all the time, what is your shahada? What does it mean? In the time of Rasulullah, they, they understood that the statement Rasul is bringing is quite a radical idea and it's it's an intellectual one as well, right? Mm. Because look, it's a rational disposition for making this. Mm. That's important for Muslims to be in, I, I ask Muslims what is Islam? It sounds like a bizarre question, ask them. I,
0: some will say it means peace, some exactly, will say okay. submission, you some understand? will say yes. Yeah, so,
1: so even this basic of what is Islam, yeah. why is the Qur'an central, why is the Qur'an, um, for example, miracle of Kalam Allah so forth, all of these things, the foundations have to be tight. Mm. And once you can place yourself in the world that you live in Mm. So the reason why this is important is because for us as Muslims The first question, La Ilaha, comes from a position of certainty No, right? And then from that position of certainty, you then have a certainty of who you are You have a certainty in relation to Allah Ta'ala, Quran, Islam and so forth And then you have a level of confidence of what you're about Mm. But if you come from a position of uncertainty Mm. Then you start doubting everything And then that's part of the problem Mm. So first there has to be this... Agency what we're talking about first has to come from that perspective first then once you gain that agency Then how do you place yourself in regards to what Muslims did in the past and how you feel about that and? Then we can make sense of Muslims made mistakes this, that, the other but what is Islam? What's mm-hmm. happening with Islam? That's mm-hmm. the most important thing now. We are human beings. We are flawed. We're gonna make mistakes Muslims made mistakes in the past So there's a lot of work that needs to be done I think Muslims are being just pulverized intellectually and psychologically to the point that there's an embarrassment It sounds harsh and I feel this There's an embarrassment of saying you're Muslim Okay? And if you say it Then you have to say it within a particular context You're being told what type of Muslim you ought to be Yeah Right?
0: And what kind of Muslim is acceptable in today's times Right
1: And then you're told what type of Muslims were good Muslims in the past Yeah So then you have that issue Heck, we're even told externally what is our golden era and what isn't Yeah, exactly We don't even get to choose what our golden era is Exactly And when we do do it It's either from a point of defence We're apologising or nostalgia, yeah. This is not helpful for the young Muslim mind Because human beings are flawed They want reality But we need a bit of nostalgia A bit of
0: nostalgia is healthy I mean,
1: (laughs) it's not a problem for me In that sense You know, people watch Arturul So I I get it We need a bit of Er Arturul Yeah, yeah, I get it We need a bit of that in our life No, I get it But you know, in your everyday Day-to-day activity (laughs) No, you need need reality Right, and when Muslims (laughs) have access to information When they have access to resources And they have access to read And they have access to YouTube and whatnot Mm. The problem they have is that Like I said, they become traumatized By the Islamic past mm. because they have a particular framework and they're judging it from that framework so there's a lot of work that needs to be done and i do believe that we need more people in the communities who are investing in these fields uh, i understand we need to make money we need to work and so forth and education in the western context is driven towards attaining a job it's monetized in islam it wasn't islam education was designed to create a person who was a good person in society mm. it was pleasing the lord the maker My last
0: question to you for today's podcast, um, away from the various revivalist movements that came after the abolishment of the Khilafah, Mm. um, and the many kind of, not just movements, the scholars and others, um, Mm. putting all of that aside, Mm. do you feel that the destructive nature of European colonialism, the brutality and the outcome it has taken place, the Sykes Puke and all Mm. of that within the Middle East and North Africa, is coupled with now this concerted effort to downplay, remove, omit and even redefine the centrality of a caliphate as an Islamic institution for Muslim political unity.
1: I think that debate We've already got past that debate I, I think that's
0: uh, no, no no but if you've got people Still asking you stud, yeah. That is Caliphate An obligation in Islam Or is Caliphate Something that's Islamic Then we do need to Carry on with these reminders
1: Yeah I mean look, It's not only that I mean people are asking me For fundamental questions Like you know Akira mm. So Sabri was right If you look at Sabri he's, he's quite right In that context um, Look I, If Muslims turn to their tradition If they just invest in that Not You know I, I People say stuff like, the ulama said Alright, which ulama? Give me some names I'm an academic, so this is what I do now Mm. The ulama have categorically agreed on something Mm. Which ulama? (laughs) Who are you talking about? So that I can look them up That old old chestnut Yeah, because it's thrown out as a a way of Mm. making the assumption And it's an assumption Yeah, yeah. And so we buy into that narrative ourselves This Mm. self-fulfilling assumption But who? So that I can look at these people and see what they actually said So that we can put this culture forward I mean Muslims to a certain degree are afraid or detached from their tradition to such a degree that when they see words that have been demonized in the West they become nervous, or ignorant and don't, don't even want to touch it with a button, Exactly yeah. And it's not just that There's many words in, in, in the Islamic tradition which be So it's weird how translation Shilafah, Sharia, jihad, hudud right. Okay, yeah. that's interesting, right? How translation works yeah. So some words that are translated And then some words that are left dirty and messy yeah. We're not going to translate those yeah, yeah, yeah. They have to sound foreign Jihad, sharia is kept
0: the way it is Yeah, exactly yeah? Whereas uh, apostasy, apostasy Right uh, And, and there's so, yeah So some are kept the way it is Because it sounds scary and foreign Right And others are translated incorrectly or yeah, unfairly I'm
1: saying, look, just give the young kids The access to that information mm. so And in, in a controlled environment Where there are scholars And ulama Who can help them with that mm. It wouldn't surprise me We're going to get to a point Where they're just going to say Islam is the problem You know And that's it You know And, and this is what Scares me a little bit yeah. um, So there was this whole idea Of trying to make sense of Political Islam Islam this, Now it's just Yeah it's Islam It's the problem
0: Concluding advice Concluding advice To two groups of people Yeah. Uh, if you can Kindly keep it Brief but succinct, which I know you will. Yeah. Advice to our faith leaders and ulama yeah. with regards to reconnecting with Islamic history and to Muslims, because you have to, because you can't, I, I guess, when you're advising ulama, it's different when you're advising the awam. Yeah. What would your advice be to those two groups of people with regards to the importance of not just Ottoman yeah. issue, but Islamic history in terms of revival? And yeah. way, you know, way, I feel
1: what? uncomfortable advising the ulama, these are people who I look up to, but I think if i was to just make a general but they're not free of advice no they're not they're not free of advice none of us are free but it's still i was raised in a culture where it's a little look i think we all have to um sit down and talk Mm. and let's sit down we're on the same side and let's try to find the multiple forms of information and knowledge that we can put down Mm. um for the future of this generation and the next generation and Mm. we need to do that And we need to have these conversations. And even if these conversations make us blue in the face and we're not happy and we don't like what somebody's saying, Mm. let's sit down and try to come to some sort of um, agreement of what it is we need to do to go forward in terms of creating knowledge. My concern has always been, I guess, in England, and I noticed this because I don't live here anymore, is that there's an obsession in the West, and I understand why, of Muslim identity, of safeguarding Muslim identity. On the same token, I would like there to be an emphasis on on product scholarship, production of knowledge, because that's equally important. If you don't pr- produce knowledge in itself, if you're not people who who are not driving to produce knowledge,
0: but we have Azhar, we have Darul Ulum, we have Medina, we have these, these 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 seminaries that are producing ulama like robots. No,
1: but I I, I believe everywhere. Mm. I I think that needs to be done everywhere. So like. I'm from England right Mm. and then I moved to Turkey and we create these human Connectivities and Mm. these different knowledge bases we bring them together to see how we can make it work Mm. Um, At the moment. I don't think we're having these conversations Look, I think it's okay to say we don't know what's going on at the moment I don't have a problem with that if Muslims said you know what like because often we're driven down the direction We should have the answers. I think it's okay to say we don't know what the answers are That's a starting point then let's talk about it. How do we go forward and um, I think we should be dictating less and conversing more, and we don't listen. We just don't. We don't listen to each other. We're not listening to the young people, do you? For what they're asking, what they want. I said to you this before. They want new faces. They want fresh faces. They want different voices. They want to be part of that discussion. They want to be visible too. Mm. So when you ca- see the case of Rasulullah, Os- Osama and Imam Ali, yeah. both of them, Rasulullah turned to them for advice. Mm. He wasn't alien to that. Mm. And we somehow seem to assume that. Kids are kids Mm. If they're acting like kids Then let's make them Act like adults Let's make them inclusive Include them in And so forth And then We have elders in our society Which we ignore as being idiots Mm. That's really unfair Because they have a lot of wisdom I told you before That my parents Learned Islam from osmosis They taught me manners They taught me how to be a good person How to talk to my neighbor And so forth That was so valuable for me So we shouldn't be so arrogant in this generation, assuming because I'm a PhD graduate, that somehow I'm better than these people, it's not. So let's listen to the communities and not just the local communities. Extend it out and let's create these networks. Let's travel, let's have this access and let's have these conversations. But I think it's time to do something different. More connection, more conversations. I hope so. And this is why, look, once again, you brought me on here. I don't know how important, like, I don't know how this is going to... Like, star's very important to me. He, <laughs>
0: he, he, he he, thinks he is and he is to me.
1: You know, and um, I, I don't know how important my voice is. I, I, look, I'm, I'm a bit of a weirdo. I understand that. But, you know, but I care. Um, I'm emotional as a person, no doubt. I care about Islam. I care about this ummah. And I fear Allah Ta'ala. And I think that's important. And we, At least if we can give the Muslims that. Uh, and then trust them a little bit So um, People like me People like you people, All of us in this world We need to step up Inshallah You know what I mean? May Allah bless you Thank you May Allah bless your work Can I just say thanks a lot for having me No No, no, no I really mean that no, like The, the um, honour was truly mine No um, And uh, look I hope I um, hope I hope I haven't offended any of your viewers. No, I mean, I no, 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 like no. And,
0: I, and, and just to message that I, I did not mean any offence to our celebrated Ulama and al Ilm from the seminaries I mentioned mm. But there is a reality that look, that you know, from the graduates and scholars i have hailed from these uh, institutions themselves That you know, we've got to a stage where it's not a problem of the quantity of Ulama mm. that we produce But there is definitely a massive discussion about the quality in terms of actually changing our state as an Ummah um, Every guest that comes onto the podcast um, Oh yeah, I saw this Yeah, but no, 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 but you're special okay. Because uh, scholars and teachers yeah, yeah. don't get the offer of arm wrestle Because oh, okay. I, I don't offend my elders like
1: this Have you won a fumble yet? Huh? Have you won a fumble? You know that I've not won a single fumble So would you like to do that? Because then you can win Because I'm not good at that But
0: No, you, you've said that So that makes me think that you're But I will try know, Bismillah, yeah. okay. So it's uh, one, two, three,
1: eight, four. Eight, I eight, declare eight, eight, a thumb wall. Ha- oh, oh, wow, you got a long thumb there. Like, oh, Wait, 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 wait. One, two, three. That's my first thumb wall victory, Zui. Bang, bang, bang. Okay. Oh,
0: alhamdulillah. That, that was my first thumb wall victory. <laughs> oh, where is it? So, well, there you go. Oh, no. Zakhir was, it was an honestly a great honor no, having you on. Thank you, you, much, much. Um, I hope that when you do come to the uk that more universities more masajid more islamic institutions get in touch with you uh, because you truly are an asset Mm -hmm. but i'm not going to throw no more sand or dirt on your face anymore Um, and i just wanted to know that i love you and your work and your counsel to me i appreciate that thank you very much Uh, and on that note brothers and sisters uh, i bring today's podcast to a close please check out our partners at the bottom of this screen uh, familybreaks.org.uk um, subscribe to this uh, YouTube channel. Leave a comment on the video. Don't, it doesn't have to be a positive comment. Please tell those that his voice is actually pretty sick. Um, uh, share the video. Subscribe to the Five Pillars channel for our views from North America. Subscribe to the Mad Mumblux channel. And until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi.